0: Hello and welcome to Doom to Repeat It, the podcast about current events and the history that got us here. I'm Nick. And I'm Logan. And last time on the show, we began an exploration of the breakdown of Mos Maiorum in the Roman Republic and the degradation of our own governing norms and traditions. Today, we're going to continue that discussion. And in particular, we're going to look at two of the most notable generals in pre-Cesarean Roman history, Gaius Marius and Lucius Cornelius Sulla, um, two giants of the Roman stage who each gained power in turn and then vied with each other for power at some point as well. Um, We'll compare their machinations to some of the things going on in American politics today and see whether they have anything to tell us. Um, so, uh, what do you think, Logan? Let's, uh, let's dive right in.
1: Yeah, that sounds good to me. Um, why don't we get started on sort of who Gaius Marius was and, um, some, a little bit of the history of, of, uh, his involvement in the Roman Republic.
0: Sure. So the rise of Gaius Marius would have been something of an impossibility, even a generation earlier. Um, Marius wasn't, Born in Rome. Um, he was born in the northern Italian town of Alpinum. Um, his family was wealthy in Alpinum, but at the time, um, the Italian countryside was not considered to be citizenry of Rome. Um, people who lived in the countryside, you know, they didn't hold citizen uh, status. There was actually a, an ongoing and lengthy political battle about whether they should be granted that status that started with the Gracchi. Um, who you know? Who wanted to make the Italian allies, and that's not something I think we talked about specifically last week. But they wanted to bring the Italian allies into the fold, um, you know, as their political clients.
1: Well, and I think, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. Citizen literally means like the person who lives in the city, right?
0: Yep, that is what that word means, and we've sort of let it run away with itself since <laughs> since the days of Rome. But that is what it means. It means somebody who lives in the city. So, I mean, there's reason for Rome to be cautious about that. That's actually, like, good logistical reasons. Like, when there's an election, um, you know, it's physically held by being in Rome. Like, you have to be on the campus Martius in order to cast your vote. And so what do you do when citizens live half a continent away? Um, anyway, that's getting way far afield. Um, Gaius Marius came from Alpinum, um, and his family weren't Roman citizens at the time that, uh, that he was born. Um, and he came up through the ranks of the army. He was a talented officer, um, and proved his skill that way. Um, basically won glory on the battlefield, um, in the West, uh, in Spain. Um, and then also against the Gauls, um, you recall from last week or from the episode about the migrant caravan, rather episode two, um, that there, you know, that there had been a, a humiliating situation where, um, Cassius Longinus had been defeated by the Gauls. His army had been made to pass under the yoke. In 105 BC, Gaius Marius went over into Gaul and kicked some ass and reminded everybody who was boss. <clears throat> and so, this gave him some notoriety, um, and he, you know, used that in ways that were that had not been used by somebody who, you know, started life as a provincial, um, you know, to that point in the Republic. Um, and he used it to gain the consulship, which in itself was pretty extraordinary. Um, and, uh, I don't have the date in front of me. I think Marius's first consulship was in one Oh four BC, but, um, I could be wrong about that, but the battle against the Gauls was in one Oh five. So the timeline follows in any case. Um, so he covered himself in, in glory and came from a place that nobody would expect and rose to power and did some pretty dramatic things, um, when he got there. And so I think that this is a place to stop and, uh, sort of asked some questions about his rise to power from obscure beginnings um how he sort of gained a popular um i I hesitate to say populist following in rome
1: Hmm.
0: uh, and then use that to ride to power and then had a different outlook on how he should or should be entitled to use that power once he gained it um and some of these things might refer to our current president, but I actually want to ask a broader question than that, which is, can we think of other cases in, in American history where that's happened, um, or is is that description um, unique to or even applicable to uh, our current president?
1: Sure. Um, I don't know. Uh, the way, so the way that Gaius rose to power being the same as the way that Trump rose to power, that's what we're trying to talk about right here.
0: Well, the specifically the features of like coming to power from non-traditional roots um and we can debate whether, you know, Trump's New York broker life is a non-traditional roots. but then like you know, leveraging sort of public notoriety to gain power and then having a, a different view on, how power is to be used or should be used than say somebody who is steeped in the governing traditions of the time.
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, so I think it's a fair question. Um, certainly our current president, um, president Trump is, uh, non-traditional, you know, um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, The difference, I think, between, and I hate to go right to the difference right away, but the difference between Trump and Marius is that Marius Marius gains power because he's extremely competent, (laughs) you know? Uh, I think, I think his, his competence as a military leader in particular is how he gains um, popular support, uh, which we've which we've sort of seen right through the years. Um yeah.
0: I was just going to say and that seems to be the the common the common differentiator between everybody that we've spoken about on the Roman timeline so far and our current ever so civilian president.
1: There definitely is a parallel, you know, in in their background, um you know, in sort of the anti-aristocratic Uh, biography that they have. Um, Although, I mean, even describing Trump as anti-aristocratic is not exactly right. Like, he's a slippery figure, right? Like, I think for most of his life, he, he has sort of fancied himself the kind of guy who can talk to the guys who work on his buildings, right? Like, he can go down and swear and, you know, rub elbows with these guys and Talk to them in a way that they maybe feel comfortable. I don't know. I mean, that that's the kind of reporting that I've heard um, in various places. And Marius, I think, was able to relate to his to his soldiers in a, in a way, right? That that someone who uh, someone who you know grew up in the center of Rome um, couldn't. I, I don't think um, relate to these farmers who you know made up their there are uh, legions. But um, so there's, there's some parallels there. Um, whether the way they wielded power is the same. I don't, I don't know about that. Do You do you want to say more about that?
0: Um, yeah, I think it's, it's probably time to get into this, but actually I think one thing that we should start with is the, what, what I'm going to assume is the PR piece of this, um, which is so Gaius Marius uh himself and his followers tell a story that is likely apocryphal um almost certainly apocryphal about how when he was a boy he saw seven eagles flying overhead when he was on a hill if i'm getting that right
1: yeah
0: and um it was uh it was a a portent of what a great man he would be and eventually um he would fulfill this prophecy by serving Not one, not two, not three, not four. I could keep going, but seven consulships, which you know, if we can go back even to uh, even to uh, Scipio Aemilianus, who served two consulships, that was kind of like, oh my God, what's happening right now? Um, So Gaius Marius took that to uh, what we'll call its logical extreme, or at least what he thought was its logical extreme. We'll see that later that that Sulla had a different idea of that. but so he served seven consulships before he died. Or, to be fair, he served six consulships and seventeen days of the seventh before he died. Right. But but I think it's interesting that uh, I, definitely by the end of uh, of Gaius's set of consulships, and I think even at the beginning. He begins to show, show some pretty like authoritarian tendencies that indicate that like he is the savior of the state. He's divinely ordained in some way, um, and I mean, he really does use this story about seeing seven eagles to justify each and every one of his runs for consulship subsequently. Um, and you know, people buy it because he wins. Um, and so that's, uh, I mean, I think that that's on its own before we start talking about any of the decisions that he made in power is an important feature of not only how he thinks about using power, but how he thinks about gaining and holding power.
1: Yeah. And this story about the Eagles, right? It doesn't matter if it's true. It matters if it sounds true, (laughs) which I think there's a parallel there between the way that the way that Trump kind of, uh, uses truth and falsity to his, to his advantage, um, you know, the fact he won is sort of for a, a lot of people, the fact that he won is enough. Um, you know, he has the power and the power sort of justifies itself. Um, and so, you know, similarly for Marius, he's like, yeah, I saw seven birds. And they're like, well, he must have, <laughs> you know, he keeps winning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, But yeah, so, and, and here's the thing, like, you know, so, that kind of, cult of personality is something we associate with authoritarian tendencies. And in the case of Marius, it did foreshadow some much more authoritarian moves later on in his sequence of consulships. And and we'll talk a little bit about some of the things that sort of stoked that Mm -hmm. um, externally. But just, you know, that I I think that's an interesting point worth noting is that um, that particular moment, which looks a lot like something a dictator in a third world country might do today, um, maps on to some other things that a dictator in a third world country might do today. So right. there's that. Um, so let's talk about what Marius did in his first consulship in 104. Um, so going back, uh, we remember that uh, Scipio Aemilianus um, had to go fight a war in Africa, and there just weren't any soldiers left uh, who met the property qualifications for the Roman Legion. And so He got around that by raising a legion of 4,000 men from his own political clients. You remember talking about that last time, Logan? Yes. Yeah. So,
1: big um, big change in the way that armies were raised.
0: Yeah. It it really was a big change in the way that armies were raised. But it was also pretty necessary because, as we may have noted elsewhere, um, you know, they had reduced the property qualification a number of times just to continue to get access to soldiers. As, you know, plots became smaller and land concentrated in the hands of a wealthy few who, oh, by the way, um, well, they would never fight on the front lines. We'll say it that way. Um, and so what Marius did was he um, in, in a created he eliminated the property requirement. Um, he made the army into a truly professional outfit um, where anybody could come join. Um, they would be uh, paid, provisioned, rationed. Um, although not uncommon for them to have to live off the land, but in general they would be paid, provisioned, and rationed, um, and then they would have the opportunity to plunder um, in foreign lands and bring that wealth back. And it suddenly made the army a completely different proposition than it had been when um, when it was you know citizen landowners who were like, oh crap, I got to stop farming and go fight this guy for a while. Yeah, um, the, the model's completely different, right? And I guess if I were comparing it to something I would think about, like, think about the armies that fought in the Civil War Mm -hmm. or even to an extent World War Two, World War One. But let's let's stick with the Civil War and then compare it to the army that fought in, you know, in Iraq. And they're two very different fighting apparatuses. Um, The soldiers who fought in Iraq um, were largely professional soldiers who um, were paid to spend their time training to fight if they weren't actually fighting. Um, and it had undergone some pretty intensive training and who really identified with the role of a soldier full time. Yeah. Um, this is in the civil war. It very much was a lot of Southern farmers who put down whatever farming utensil they were using to go and fire, uh, you know, these newfangled rifles at the, at the Northern aggressors who were coming to tell them how to live their lives. I, um, or in, you know, in reverse, um, northern uh, aggressors attacking people who were rebelling against the country. Um, but in any case, right it was far it was you know it was citizens who were defending one set of values or another because they needed to be defended, but not because they were a professional fighting force of any kind. So this is right. when Roman makes that sw- when Rome rather makes that switch um, and 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 really pulls a hard right turn on how they raise a military force. Um, You know, these forces, they were affectionately known as Marius's mules, um, and they were known, you know, they they did the equivalent of going for like a 20-mile run with a full kid on their back Mm -hmm. Uh, on a regular basis. They could, you know, build fortifications and tear down fortifications. They had engineers. They were a really effective fighting force all the way around. Um, And they had some success in the field, Um, so much so, in fact that uh, Marius was elected to five consecutive consulships between the year 104 and the year 100 BCE. Um, And I have in my notes written next to that WTF. Because WTF, you don't do five consulships total in your lifetime. How did he get five in a row all of a sudden? But that's what it is. Um, But also, defying norms to hold power longer than the prescribed period Maybe one of those authoritarian tendencies we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's stop there and talk about um, talk a little bit about the American fighting force now and how it's used and how it's comprised and see whether the comparison that I sort of made in an offhand way just a minute ago is a valid one. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so I definitely think I mean the the um, competence or excellence of the fighting force when you have a fighting force which is dedicated, to fighting, um, alone, you know, it can't help but increase the, the, uh, effectiveness of your force when, um, you have men and in our case, men and women who, um, whose whole job is to, you know, learn how to be war fighters, uh, and how to do that in a way that, you know, decreases costs and increases effectiveness. Um, So that's certainly the case for Marius's, Marius's legions, Um, you know, rather than, rather than these, these guys who have to put, as you said, put down their farming implements and then go remember how to, you know, how to stay in formation um, that all they do is, is practice how to stay in formation, you know, as kind of a base level example. Um, And so, you know, I guess the difference is that at this point in Roman history they're not you know they're not yet hiring outside groups um to carry out their wars for them or i guess groups that aren't necessarily associated you know s- strongly with the state or tied strongly to the or to the, the state of Rome um the the real innovation that we have in our time is is the rising use of military contractors. And so one thinks of what used to be called, um, Blackwater and which was then called G services, X E G services. I think that's how you would pronounce that. Um, and which is now known as Academy. Uh, it's not a good sign when you have to, you know, (laughs) change the name of your company every five years. But, um, you know, this is a, This is a totally private um, military corporation, which is it is founded by a former Navy SEAL. I'm sorry, um, this is not actually directly in the
0: line of comparison that we're making, but I just want to point it out since we're talking about this company. They want to be the private viceroy of Afghanistan, like they're lobbying for the U.S. to pull troops out of Afghanistan and give them permission as a private company to basically rule the country on the U.S.'s behalf.
1: Wow, I hadn't read that. That's incredible.
0: He feels a lot like a Roman governorship.
1: It really does. Yeah, that's kind of scary. (laughs) So we can now
0: track back to the main conversation, but I just wanted to throw that out there. And I I do have actually, as long as we're here, can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. So does it make sense to move the goalposts a little bit? Because we have a professional army right now. Yeah. Right. But that professional army, in some normative sense, has a tie to citizenship. Yes. Right. Like service to your country. But then when you get when you're discharged from the army, then if you choose to be a soldier thereafter, you can go work and make 10 times. Well, I'm exaggerating. Maybe I'm not exaggerating. I actually have no clue. But you can make X amount more like by a factor of five or ten. Working for a military contractor and like really operating by very, by a lot fewer rules just because, you know, you have experience and you're, you know, you're a trained soldier. Right. Um, And so does it pay or is it worth making a distinction between our like active duty service members and the contracted forces that augment our capacity in certain areas of the world?
1: I think so. I mean, I think, I think. The interesting thing about right a professional American soldier is that the majority of them, and I don't know the exact breakdown, but I would think the the large majority of them serve um, a deployment or two, and and then discharge from the army um, and take advantage of um, take advantage of uh, you know education. Um, opportunities and things like that, that they, that they have, you know, once they've served their time. And, um, I think, you know, it's a real change for, for, for those men and women not to become career soldiers in the United States military, but then to become a career soldier in, you know, this third party corporation. Um, sorry, I kind of went I went off the rails there. I'm not sure what the question was. The question was: is is
0: is it useful to think about the distinction between the the common or the core force and the contracted force um, in the same way as you think about the distinction between the citizen army and the professional army in Rome, or is that a specious comparison?
1: Yeah, I think there's a difference because the or I think there's a it's useful to draw that comparison because. Um, Because the citizen, the citizen army, which was, you know, raised, uh, raised from, you know, citizen farmers, their goal was to get back to farming, um, to carry on the way of life that they had known before. And, you know, they were citizens of, of Rome. Whereas Marius is pulling from folks who are not citizens, right? Um, or who have not traditionally been citizens, and giving them an opportunity for, you know, wealth and plunder, not to mention just something to do, um, that they may have not had before. Um, and so their whole goal is to be a soldier, remain a soldier, and to make sure that they continue having s- success under Marius, because he sort of pays the bills, right? Um, it's not the state that pays the bills. It's not the. It's not their connection to the land, which, you know, Rome kind of, uh, claims and defends and on which they make their living. But it's, it's literally the, literally their status as a soldier, which, uh, which provides their livelihood. Um, and so I do think that, you know, when one, when one, um, is a soldier in the United States military, there's a huge difference, you know, to a soldier who's you know, fighting for a corporation, although that corporation may be contracted with the U.S. government. Yeah, I, um,
0: I think I see that the same way. Is there anything else that you want to hit on before I sort of talk about some of the complicated politics of the social war in Rome and how that played out in the political arena?
1: Um, no, I think, you know, I think we could talk about sort of, you touched on this a little, that there's a, there's sort of a, disparity in the um, oversight that, that a citizen soldier has and that a corporate soldier has. Um,
0: Right. Like, well, there is no U S corporate military code.
1: Right. And, and so it's not until, you know, it's not until there's some uh, video or a scandal that comes out um, that, that we have any oversight of these corporations really. Um, and I think again, like the fact that Blackwater has changed its name three times since I heard about them is sort of goes to show that, you know, they kind of have to cover their ass because they have bad actors. Um, also
0: Academy seems like an, an especially Orwellian name.
1: Yeah. It's really, it's odd. And it's, it's Academy with an I, (laughs) A C A D M E I. D-E-M-I, which is almost a little Roman in its way also.
0: <laughs> I was just thinking it was the Stripper Academy. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> uh, but no, we can. I think we can move on to, to Sulla if you want to do that now. All right. Well, I mean,
0: and we're not even going to move on to Sulla. We're going to move on to this gritty gray period that can't really be defined as Marius or Sulla. It's just this time when they're both there competing with each other. Um, so we're going to have to get our hands a little bit dirty to understand exactly what's going on here. Cause there's some complicated, as I said, politics that play out between Gaius Marius and Lucius Cornelius Sulla, um, in the course of the social war. So let's talk a little bit about what the social war was. Um, and then we can dive into, um, s- how that played out. So when Marius um, left the consulship, he actually left it Rome in a state of relative peace, um, you know, which good on him. That's uh, that's, that's the goal. Right. Um, <clears throat> but in 95 BC, the, they, the, a, a law passed called the Lex Lycinia Mucia. Um, and, uh, to my great shame, I can't translate that Latin on the spot. Lex means law. I'm pretty sure about that. Uh-huh. But in any case, um, what it did was it expelled from the, from the city any resident who was not a Roman citizen. See, the citizen question gets tricky because these people did live in the city until they didn't. Um, right. But <clears throat> So um, that, uh, that was sort of the spark that that started a powder keg going that came off in 91 B.C., um, when, uh, they, uh, the tribune named Drusus proposed, um, a division of state lands, um, the enlargement of the Senate and a confer a conferral of Roman citizenship upon all free men of Italy. So basically what he wanted to do was, um, create a senatorial class amongst the, the, the Italian provinces and give them all voting rights, um, which would at the end of the day kind of pack the Senate with, You know political clients on their side um so what happened was um of course because rome just isn't very good at doing the right thing when it comes to the italian allies Um, as soon as drusus the the tribune proposed this um in what felt feels a little bit like a flashback he was assassinated in the forum um So that's a thing that's still happening. Um, and so, but this time the Italian States that were like, you know, sitting there waiting with bated breath to find out if they were going to become full and equal partners in the Republic turns out no. Um, and so they went into revolt. Um, and so Marius took command of a legion, um, in, uh, 91 BC or I'm sorry. Yeah. 91 BC and took that legion out to fight the Italian allies. Um, now, it should be noted that one of his chief lieutenants in this legion was a man named Lucius Cornelius Sulla. Um, and where Marius was born in Alpinum, uh, Sulla was born to a, a, a an aristocratic senatorial family that had roots going all the way back. Um, Sulla was haughty. Uh, he looked down his nose. He believed strongly that the, the Senate was the Senate because they were better. They had bluer blood, however you want to look at it. I mean, it might have been purple or blood because that was the color of royalty in Rome. <laughs> um, but like, right. So Sulla was the opposite of Marius. Marius was in many ways offensive to Sulla, although obviously he couldn't say it because he was a subordinate. Mm-hmm. Um, so early on in the Social War, Marius um, left the field. It's not clear why. There's some speculation that he had a stroke, actually. Um, but in any case, he left the field, and that left <clears throat> Sulla in a place to reap a lot of glory for winning this war. Um, there's also some speculation that Marius actually didn't agree with the politics of the social war ha- coming from Alpinum himself, but that's, again, speculative at this point. How could he? Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't know. Um, but so, all of a sudden, Marius... Um, is in a place where he he had to leave the field Sulla is now covered in glory Marius still fancies himself the leading man in Rome but Sulla rather than like being a capable lieutenant like he might have been if Marius had stayed in the field now ever so slightly resembles a threat and so like his protégé and lieutenant all of a sudden starts to smell like you know somebody who might stab him in the back if he keeps it turn too long um which spoiler, yeah, that's a thing. um, and so <clears throat> what Marius does um is at the same time, there is uh, a in a domestic issue in Rome involving lucius Ap- uh, Ap- Apulius it's Apulius. i'm that's the best I can do Sat- <laughs> Saturnius. that's hard to say um. <laughs> And what he did was um, he advocated um, basically Gracchi uh, reforms in line with those that started with the Gracchi, um, you know, except it sort of brought in Marius as a partner. So it gave lands to Marius's veterans specifically, reduced the price of wheat distributed to the people by the state. And then it also Hmm. did there was just a little bit of personal politics involved because that's really unavoidable. And so they exiled one of uh, one of Marius's personal enemies. Um, But the Senate wasn't really pleased. Um, Saturninus was a tribune. And so uh, they opposed him, you know, in what, you know, third verse, same as the first. There was a devolving series of. Um, breaks with tradition um, until um, S- uh, Saturninus actually had a senatorial um, opponent assassinated during the elections in the year 99 BC. Um, and so the Senate in that case issued a decree that ordered Marius, who was the consul at the time he was serving out the end of his sixth consulship, um, to put down the revolt. Now remember, this is a revolt against or a revolt that was started by somebody who was doing all the things that Marius wants done. Right. Um, And at any other time. I firmly believe that Marius would have kind of said to the Senate, "Uh, screw you guys, I'm going home. But with Sulla waiting in the wings, remember, Sulla is senatorial through and through and has the bluest of blood. All of a sudden, there's a capable replacement. Just kind of hanging out there. Um, And so Marius turns on his own allies um, in, in what is a fairly Machiavellian move um, and puts down the revolt that was again started largely to support him and his political clientele. And that's because he all of a sudden needed to send a message to the Senate that he was not the 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 raffish provincial who came in with dirt under his fingernails and somehow ended up sitting, you know, in front of the Senate of Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's just an interesting and complicated bit of politics. Um, and I think that that specifically drove a lot of what followed. Um, and I don't know if there's a good parallel to that in current events right now, but let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the, the rivalries or the, um, other centers of power that may subtly influence how presidencies in general and this presidency in particular, uh, react to situations. I think that's a useful conversation to have. And I think it's easy to start with the vice president, right?
1: Well, I was thinking of Mitt Romney, uh, actually, um, because he's a blue blood um, sort of uh, bred to understand that he has a shot at the presidency. I think he's understood that since he was a a kid, you know. Um, His father was the governor of, I want to say, Michigan. Is that right? Um, Utah? I, I don't actually know. I don't think so. I'm pretty sure... I don't know why I think Michigan but um uh anyway um you know he sort of has the whole the whole package he he even looks like someone who might be president <laughs> in a way um uh and you know here he is in the president's own party and he has spoken out in various ways Against kind of the way that Donald trump operates um and I think he speaks out of a out of a place of you know great privilege um and um you know and an understanding of no matter what your politics are, there's a certain way of doing these things and a certain way of looking and sounding as you're doing them and i th- I think there is kind of a parallel there between. You know, Marius and Sulla, um, you know, I'm sure Sulla, as you said, looked down his nose at at Marius, even when he was serving, you know, kind of under Marius. So um, so that's what I think of right away. Um, Pence, on the other hand, Vice President Pence has kind of hitched his wagon, right, to Trump. Um, We haven't yet entered a, a political moment where, you know, Pence can take advantage of Trump's Roughness or incompetence or however you want (laughs) to however you want to uh, characterize that. Um, Obviously, I have a partisan way of looking at it, but um, but there's definitely a chance there, right? I think that in in my own mind, even as a you know kind of lefty, I I sort of prefer the stability of of this this guy who's kind of been you know Pence who's kind of been groomed to to look look and act a certain way as a politician. So do you
0: think that let's call it the I, let's expand it beyond Romney and call it the Romney wing of the GOP, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that wing of the GOP, that center of power has affected decisions that the president's taken in his first two years? Like I'm thinking like maybe the firing of Steve Bannon, who was obviously a close ally and connected to his populist base. Um, or do you think that that's generated more by other outside forces or inside forces like jared kushner i th-
1: i think it's gener i think it's generated yeah more by um by trump's mode of operation which is to kind of go with his gut you know um and to just wield the power that he has uh, at a whim um the Republican Party, for its part, whether they're the Romney wing or not, seem to have sort of f- have fallen behind the president in certain ways, and are, are taking advantage of the fact that you know, or up until recently, have taken advantage of the fact that they control, you know, every every wing of government. Um, and so, I don't, I don't know if if Pence has someone like Pence or whomever has Trump's ear in that way. Uh, although I've heard that he, Trump pretty much believes whatever the last person he talked to told him. Um, so maybe he does, you know, I mean, Pence is, is going to have more access probably to the white house than a lot of people in government. But, um, I don't know. I think it's really hard to say because it's just, it isn't said and done. If it was eight years later, maybe we would have a better sense of what's actually going on, you know, inside that, inside that. That house but what's your what's your impression Uh, I truly don't have a great view
0: on it Um, all I can see is what happens from the outside and so I'm trying myself to understand if um, how much pull if any that wing of the party has on the president's actions or whether it just is setting itself up as a counterpoint
1: I certainly think that there's a a parallel in that um, Trump one thing Trump has is a is some kind of like instinctual sense of who's for him and against him and um i definitely think that he would view anyone in a you know more traditional mold uh with with high suspicion uh i don't think he's an easy ally necessarily for them um and so you know, from the point of view of Marius, like, he's right to suspect (laughs) Sola. He's absolutely right to suspect Sola for a lot of the reasons that we've laid out. And, um, and, you know, I think Trump would be right to, to suspect somebody like, like, like Pence, and to set himself in opposition to, you know, a Romney. Um, Although, you know, I, I don't know if Romney has voted yet, like, a lot of these guys who speak out against Trump all the time, when it comes time to vote, they're right behind him. So, um, I don't know if the optics actually matter as much as as the the way that we, you know, really do wield power in this country, which is through um, through taking votes in the Senate and the House. Fair enough.
0: Um, all right. Well, let's talk about some of the fallout of this because the the real juicy stuff hasn't even happened yet. Um, so at, towards the end of the, the social war, um, right as that was ra- ra- uh, wrapping up, uh, in 88 BC, um, the, all of a sudden in Pontus, which is the, basically the West coast or the Mediterranean coast of Turkey, um, uh, the King Mithridates of Pontus, um, decided that Rome seemed pretty distracted with internal squabbles. And so he decided to, you know, just kind of like Take some land in Greece, um, and maybe they wouldn't notice. Um, but the other thing that happened in 88 BC is Sulla was elected consul. Um, so let's stop there. Um, a the the command against Pontus is possibly a pretty lucrative one because um, Rome currently has a number of ally or client states in Greece, um, but no real territory across the Hellespont in Turkey. That's officially theirs, or or their vassal states, and so they, um, you know, there's a chance of bringing home quite a bit of foreign booty, as well as covering oneself in glory. And we all know the Romans love to do that. Um, So Sulla's elected consul. What is the office of consul? Well, the office of consul is the office that commands Roman, that commands Roman armies, right? So there's a war that's being started in the east. There is a man who has been elected um to be the guy who goes and commands the roman armies in that war um by all counts, right that's how this works mm-hmm. um and that's certainly how sulla thought this would work um and so sulla sulla starts getting ready to go and he's like do to do i just won the social war i'm going to go beat down greece and you know the social war there wasn't really a lot of spoils but in greece i'm going to take some money home and it's going to be a good day for sulla uh, and Marius, meanwhile, goes to a tribune, those pesky tribunes, um, Publius Sulpicius Rufus, and has, him, uh, has an assembly uh, basically appoint Marius, um, and it's pretty uh, pretty clear that Marius bribed him by eliminating some heavy debts that he had. In any case, um, yeah, he, he, he called an assembly, and that assembly uh, appointed Marius to command the same army. So just to be clear, we have an elected senatorial magistrate, magistracy, the consulship, that should be and has been for time out of mind in command of Roman armies fighting a war on foreign soil. But we also have somebody who has the direct endorsement of the assembly, and remember the assembly is the one who gets to write the laws, um, and that, in, that specifically appoints him to go and command that army. Now remember the, the consul technically doesn't have the legal distinction of, you know, leading a specific army because that would get really tedious as they fought more and more wars. He's just the one who leads the armies, so that's the legal question. Does the assembly's specific direction to Marius regarding this army and this war supersede Sella's responsibility?
1: Well this is so I mean this is like if the House of Representatives what, like hired a general to to um to carry out a war somewhere and and super and then and then superseded the president's authority as the commander-in-chief also
0: i mean i feel like that's maybe not the most valid comparison if only because power is exercised so much more heavily through economic and and to some extent political means than it than military um in the day and age that it it probably an army comparison doesn't make as much sense as say, if we were litigating a trade dispute in front of the WTO and the House of Representatives appointed its own separate trade representative. That's not as sexy, maybe, but that's probably closer.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting. Uh, so is it? This is the first time. So in the past, the we've had people appointed as consuls in order to carry out wars who were not old enough or who had already had a consulship, but we've never had someone appointed as a general who was not a consul is that right
0: um I hesitate to say yes uh, I would be much more comfortable if you had asked the same question with the word imperator instead of general
1: okay sure
0: um I, I yeah. Um, but yes, there, the title of Imperator was reserved for consuls. There were lots of command positions that were held by non-consuls. But I see. Yeah, yeah.
1: Interesting. Okay. Okay. Still a huge, this is a, a major break with the way things are done. Correct. Right.
0: Um, and also, um, like I said, it's not just like a cut and dried thing. It's a legal dispute at this point. Yeah, right. And it's a legal dispute that's not really being litigated in the courts of Rome because Sulla and his army are already halfway to Greece. And so it's litigated between Sulla's like military envoy and an envoy that was sent from the assembly, but not the Senate in Rome. <laughs> um. So, I mean, you know, you always hear about this, you know, some things coming from the Senate and the people of Rome. Like that's what they say when they indicate that something comes from the whole government. Well, this literally came from the people of Rome, but not the Senate um which is a weird sort of divorce. But anyway, solid did not care too much for the message that came from the assembly. Um and in fact, he uh basically turned to his army and said, this is bullshit. Uh come on boys, we're going back to Rome. Um and so they and to his credit, they were like, yeah, this is bullshit. Let's go to Rome. Um, and so they, they all, and like, that was a pretty big deal. Soldiers would have been sort of trained not to do that from the time they were alive because it had never been done before. But so they're, they're all like, yeah, all right, tally ho, let's go to Rome together. Um, and they did. Um, and it wasn't for a cordial discussion with the assembly, um, or the Senate. It was to drive Marius out of the city, um, because he was still in the city preparing his own army. Um, they drove him into exile in the West. Um, They basically seized control of the Senate and the Senate and the Assembly, and they said, who's leading that army in the East? Remind me. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Is that sword pointy? Just answer my question. Um, And uh, it turns out it was Sulla. Everybody meant Sulla the whole time. They don't know how Marius's name got into that bill. Um, They spelled (laughs) Sulla horribly wrong. It was all just a terrible error. Sulla says, that's what I thought marches on back to Rome or marches on back to the east um and so he you know he's he's still the consul for the year um but here's the thing it's getting towards the end of the year now because of all this marching that he's had to do and deposing of of rivals and it's been a taxing year and so the year's almost over his consulship is almost up and he's like well shit this sucks um because now um a marian ally a guy by the name of cinna
1: Marius but bite, Marius bites the dust somewhere along around here, right?
0: Uh, no incorrect. Um, oh, okay This is this is he's still got one more consulship to serve uh, Oh, Okay, go ahead with Senna so Senna takes uh, takes the reins in the city and he immediately says He he's uh, takes command of an army himself because he knows that Marius and Sulla aren't going to get along But he's
1: Marius Right. that's right,
0: so he goes out there to Sulla and he says listen you need to give me command of this army um, and and uh, you, need, you know, we need to combine our armies and they're going to be under my command. And Sulla was like, yeah, no, um, but I will kill you if you stay. And Sinna was like, mm, OK, I'll go. Um, actually, I don't remember. Did he kill Sinna at that time? At some point, sinna died, but I don't think that was it. Um, and so Sulla goes on, prosecutes a war against Mithridates, finally, um, you know, takes home, you know, finishes up, conquers him, seizes all the shiny things and, uh, and then turns to his <laughs> army and says, Hey, um, why don't we go back to Rome again? And the army looks at each other and they're like, yeah, that was, that was pretty cool the first time. And so they go back to Rome a second time. And, um, the thing is this time the swords in the Senate don't have anywhere to go. Once the Senate acquiesces to their demands, there's no war in Pontus. There's just Sulla in Rome.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. So that seventh consulship that Marius served it happened while in 89 um, or, in, right. or I'm sorry, in 80 after Sulla passed. Yes. Um, and so Sulla is still fighting in Pontus and all of a sudden Marius comes back to Rome because Cinna has sort of laid the groundwork for that. Um, That's right. And he wins another consulship, and Marius is pissed. Um, this is when really, like these seventeen days between January first of eighty six and the day he dies on January seventeenth, um, are just a bloodbath. Um, did you mean? Did you mean Sulla is pissed? No, I mean Marius because Marius comes back and wins a consulship.
1: Marius? Oh, Marius is pissed. Yeah, I see what so you're saying. He's okay, got power. Okay, he's got gotcha.
0: power for 17 days before he dies. And those right, okay, 17 okay. days are... He just bathes in a river of blood. He kills anybody who looks at him the wrong way. Um, at some point, Plutarch noted that whenever anybody greeted Marius and got no salutation or greeting in return, this in itself was a signal for the slaughter in the very street. Right. Like, Marius killed Everybody. He was so pissed at Sulla and the sullen regime that had driven him out of Rome in ignominy, um, and so when he came back, he started killing everybody. And then uh, it turns out he was a really old man who had probably suffered a stroke about ten years before. His body just couldn't handle all that killing and died itself.
1: Hmm.
0: And then Sulla came back with his army.
1: And this is this is so Sulla at this point is is out. He's he's just won or is winning against Mithridates. Yes. Um, and, uh, during that time, that's Marius when is
0: all his friends at home.
1: Yeah. Marius is, is, yeah, spilling blood in Rome. So Sulla is coming back with his army now to Rome. Yes. And, right. uh, turns out now Sulla's is pissed. Everybody's pissed.
0: Um, but Sulla gets to Rome and finds that none of the people that he left in power to help administer things while he was out in the East are alive. Right. Um, And in fact, the only people left that are in power administering things are Marius's people who were, you know, the only people like, you know, well, it was not natural. It was unnatural selection, but nevertheless, they had been selected and they were the only people left exercising anything like power. Um, So Sulla thought about this for a moment and then killed them all. (laughs) Um,
1: And so, oh, man, Sulla
0: found himself sitting atop a political heap that was. Largely, I mean, the, it's, it was obvious for it had been obvious for a long time that the system was broken. Let's not act like this was new. But like now, it was broken and devoid of working parts. Like there's no there's no magistrates left. Um, you know, there are certain members of the Senate, but a lot of them have been killed. A lot of them have been killed. Um, you know, anybody serving in a meaningful magistr- magistracy um, was likely there because they were either a Sullen or a Marian. And Marius had killed all the Sullins, and Sulla had killed all the Marians. So it was basically Sulla standing alone as an executive with no supporting bureaucracy or uh, magisterial support below him. So he found himself in the position of needing to think about what kind of changes might be made.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there.
0: Yep, so much so that I think it's going to take us a whole nother episode to talk about
1: so join us next time when we look at what Sulla did when he found himself atop a government with nobody underneath and how the changes that Sulla made at the top contributed directly to the next guy who named himself Dictator for Life, a guy named Gaius Julius Caesar.